Before you listen to Paranormal Exist, the podcast show, I just want to announce the bone-chilling journey that awaits you on Charlie's Chills podcast, exclusively on YouTube, search at C-H-A-R-L-I-E-S-C-H-I-L-L-S. Subscribe, and embrace the darkness that awaits. When I was a child growing up in Singapore, the weird and inexplicable was something rarely discussed in my father's family. It was not that the family did not believe in such things, but whenever the subject came up, grandma would firmly squash all irresponsible talk. No one was allowed to speak of ghosts or scary happenings to the younger grandchildren. Being a fierce, dragonborn matriarch, her word was an imperial decree. We all obeyed grandma. I had originally intended that grandma's house be the very first of my narratives. But for some reason, either the right words wouldn't come to me, or I was constantly getting distracted. Finally, I silently asked my late grandma for permission to tell the story about the house, assuring her I would do my best to be honest, respectful and discreet. That evening, I sat down and start recording this, and the words began to flow. It may well be that the moment wasn't right until now. After Grandpa passed away in Penang, Malaysia around the late 1940s, my father and his three brothers moved to Singapore where they were reunited with their mother, three sisters and youngest brother. When Dad and my four uncles married and moved out of the Cairnhill house, they still returned regularly to pay their respects to Grandma and catch up with my first Aunt Elsie and her four children, and second Aunt Maggie and her son. The house at Cairn Hill was a stately, three-story colonial with whitewashed walls and a sloping red-brown terracotta roof. The long, winding driveway snaked past the wide staircase that graced the front of the house. A dozen stone steps climbed straight up to the foyer with the floor tiled in geometric patterns of russet, tan, and dark brown. Stepping past the threshold of the foyer, you would see the gleam of wooden floors amid a plentiful scattering of white cane furniture. The floors and stairs had a tendency to creak, with startling suddenness when the warm day cooled with the coming of twilight. On very humid days, the cream-colored wooden shutters at the tall, spacious windows were flung open to catch the evening breeze. The family lived there for over 30 years. It was an accepted fact to us those odd things happened on the property at Cairn Hill. The peculiar aspect of it was that the incidents mainly happened to visitors to the house. Members of the family were generally left in peace. Tradesmen were a favorite target for mischief. Their tools would be mysteriously misplaced, only to turn up later in another room. Little annoyances like that. People tended to look over their shoulders as they worked, complaining that it felt as if many eyes were drilling into their backs, making sure that they did a good job. 
most would depart as quickly as they could after finishing their work. There was one time when an electrician was called in to fix the faulty wiring in the ceiling. The poor man became quite dizzy every time he climbed up the ladder to reach the ceiling cavity, retching horribly and had to stop for a while. He was quite embarrassed by his reaction and said to Grandma, I'm a healthy man, Madam Lin. I never had problems with heights before. Maybe the air is bad in the ceiling. Grandma cast a sharp glance at the ceiling before turning back to the electrician and said, you will be fine now, just carry on with what you were doing. The man found he was now able to safely climb up the ladder to finish the electrical wiring. It was just another weird happening at Grandma's house. Grandma sometimes took in tenants to supplement the household income. A number of them did not stay very long. They never really explained what was wrong, apart from commenting that their sleep was interrupted by odd sounds throughout the night. Then there was Lang, the son of a family friend who wanted to stay for a few weeks while waiting for hostel accommodation at university to become available. My aunts did their best to convince him that the place might not be suitable. However, he was all of 20 and very confident. I'm an educated man, Lang declared, brushing aside their warnings. Modern men don't believe in ghosts. They dare not cause trouble for me. That was not a wise thing to say. Especially when he had no way of knowing who or what might be listening. The very night that Lang moved in, the family heard a whole heap of shouting and banging from his room. When Aunt Elsie's son, Ned, who is the oldest among my paternal cousins, knocked on the door, everything fell silent. Alarmed, Ned persisted until the young man opened the door. A chorus of worried voices greeted him. Lang, what's wrong? You okay, Lang? Why all the noise? Are you okay inside? In response to the family's queries, Lang claimed to have slept through the commotion. He insisted he had no idea what the fuss was all about. But next morning, Lang packed all his bags and told Grandma he had found another place to stay. He wouldn't say anything about what had happened in the night. Nor did he breathe a word on the matter to his own folks either. The family did not mention the incident with Lang again for many years after that. Whenever anyone in my family refers to Grandma's house, would always think of the Karen Hill place in Singapore. The house belonged to my paternal grandmother for over 30 years, except when it was used by Japanese army officers during the occupation from 1942 to 1945. The family had been fortunate that they were allowed at least a day's notice to vacate the premises. In those dark days, there were many instances where reluctant occupants were forcibly removed. Often in a terrible, final way. It may well be that my father's family received special consideration because first Aunt Elsie, the oldest and prettiest of grandma's daughters, was also the mistress of an army officer at the time. Cousin Ned is half Japanese. 
The approach from Cairnhill Road to the entrance of the property was secured by a pair of ornate, white-coated metal gates. Thick bamboo groves behind the gates flanked the entrance, rustling and sighing with every passing breeze. The garden was a veritable jungle, spreading out on the left of the gravel driveway that led to the house. It overflowed with richly green foliage and shrubs vibrant with red, pink, white and yellow tropical flowers. Lush banana plants lined the foot of the garden, providing shade on warm, sunny days. As children, we thought the garden was a fantastic wonderland. Many kung fu battles were held among the bamboo forest, where we fought off wicked bandits, carried out heroic missions against enemies, trounced the bloodthirsty barbarian hordes and saved the empire. When we played nearer the house, the banana plants obligingly sheltered us beneath their wide leafy spread for thrilling games of hide-and-seek. Those were glorious, carefree days. There was no talk of darkness, plenty of food on the table and the sun kept a cheerful eye on us all day. We were generally allowed to play havoc, scream and yell as we pleased, blissfully unaware of any past troubles when we romped in that garden. My father's family had inherited certain gifts from my paternal great-grandmother, as well as grandpa. Grandma's mother was a village headwoman in Thailand, which meant that she was the wise woman who officiated over births, deaths, marriages and other formal ceremonies. In her position, she had to have knowledge of ancient traditions and spiritual practices, after all, she lived during the late 1850s to early 1900s, when people walked a lot more closely with their beliefs in the spirit world. But that is all I know about the Thai side of the family. Second Aunt Maggie was a great source of information on all things weird and inexplicable. One Sunday afternoon, when Grandma was in the kitchen supervising the evening meal, Aunt Maggie said to my father, that she needed to talk to him. No one noticed my little, pointy, ears were in the vicinity. My older sister and cousins had decided to race each other around the garden, in that day. At age five, and the youngest in our gang of four, I was too short to keep up with them. So, I was playing by myself on the wooden floor behind the large living room sofa, conveniently out of sight and mind. My young ears pricked up at the odd note in Aunt Maggie's voice. With the instinctive skill of the very naughty and sneaky, I instantly went quiet and on the alert. They spoke in a polyglot blend of Singapore English, with a smattering of Malay thrown in. My command of Hokkien was better in those days and I could follow the gist of the conversation. Aunt Maggie confided to Dad, I hear Mother talking to someone in her room at night. Maybe she's listening to radio. When I asked her in the morning, she can't remember. And my dad in a chiding tone, said. Don't be so nosy. Aunt Maggie persisted, I'm worried about her. She's not going crazy. Dad sounded annoyed, and said, why you not tell Ken? First Uncle Ken was the oldest in the family. However, it was my father, the second oldest of the five brothers, 
that everyone went to with their troubles. Mother listens to you. I'm not the superstitious type. I don't see things. I didn't learn anymore, because my listening post was discovered at that point. I was summarily scolded and sent outside to join the gang. When I asked Aunt Maggie about that conversation some years ago, she was surprisingly vague about it. All she would say was that Grandma was just talking to the spirits. First Aunt Elsie and her youngest daughter, Sonia had their own encounters. My aunt's bedroom was on the second story at the front of the house, where the window with its cream-colored shutters overlooked the garden. My cousin Sonia shared the room when she was very young. One sultry night, Sonia, who was about four at the time, was woken up by distant feminine voices coming from the garden below. She got up and padded over to the window to find out who they could be. The moon glowed bright and round in the night sky, shining on a bevy of ethereal Asian-looking women gathered near the banana grove in the garden. They appeared to glide over the ground, and were singing, laughing or talking among themselves. Fascinated by the scene, Sonia quickly called for her mother. When Aunt Elsie saw what she was looking at, she hastily shushed her daughter and put her back to bed. Decades later, Aunt Maggie brought up this incident when the family got together for Sunday lunch, and were reminiscing about the peculiar happenings at the Cairnhill house. By then, Grandma and Aunt Elsie had both passed away, and the property was no longer in the family. Sonia had already married and gone with her American husband to California. Once I heard Aunt Maggie said to my dad that, Remember when Sonia saw the beautiful girls in the garden? My dad with a chuckle and replied, yeah, she said it was the banana tree ghost. Aunt Maggie said, I saw them myself, I also saw Mother and Elsie. Say again. Dad was openly incredulous. Aunt Maggie told us that she had problems sleeping on full moon nights. As she lay awake in bed, she could sometimes hear women's voices from beyond her window. On a few occasions when she looked out the window, she was sure she saw Grandma and Aunt Elsie chatting with strange women in the banana grove below. At other times, she also glimpsed another group of women clustered near the bamboo groves at the gates. There was much excited and rather heated discussion among the family. Everyone had an opinion and wanted to share it, all at the same time. I learned a whole plethora of folk tales, legends, and spiritual beliefs from many different cultures that day. Among them is a Thai legend that tells of wild banana groves haunted by the gentle, Nang Tani, on full moon nights, these female spirits can be seen floating above the ground near their banana plants. They are believed to be protective of women who have been ill-treated by men. Such as the comfort women used by the Japanese who were kept at Cairn Hill during the occupation. As a child, I've seen strips of cloth tied around the trunks of some banana plants in the garden. I now know they were warnings that the Nang Tani might just be around. 
Grandma's house at Cairnhill had its share of secrets from the occupation in 1942 to 1945. My family suspected that certain atrocities took place under its roof when it was a base of operations for Japanese army officers, but we were glad that the full history was never made known to us. Sometimes, it was best to let the past stay in the past. I loved Grandma's house. For a little girl, the house hid an exciting mystery behind every nook, corner, and cranny. On days when I couldn't tag along after my older sister and cousins, I would spend hours exploring the house instead. I liked how the darkly gleaming, worn floorboards felt cool and smooth beneath my bare feet. The creaks and cracks of the settling wood were like the cozy prattle of a beloved friend. I would wander along the long, shadowy hallways until I made it right through to the back. There, a wooden staircase descended onto a square, stone-paved courtyard. The courtyard divided the house from the huge kitchen, which was located in a separate building. The kitchen had only three walls, being wide open at the side that faced the main house. Over to the left of the kitchen were the servants' quarters, a room shared by the cook and the housemaid. I once curiously peeked inside their quarters and was shooed off by the adults for being cheeky. My paternal grandmother was the supreme matriarch of the house. She was very particular on protocol and civilized manners, as befitting our status as a respectable family. As children, we were not allowed to order the servants around or be rude to them, it was not our place. Even my boisterous cousins, Tim and Perry, sons of first uncle Ken, obeyed grandma's directives. Well, most of the time anyway. Tim and Perry were close in age to my older sister, Lily. We often played together as children and were known to the family as the Gang of Four. Lily usually played the role of Princess of the Hidden Fortress, and I was her faithful handmaid. Perry was the reluctant villain, his older brother, Tim was our hero, and the undisputed ringleader of all our childhood exploits. One fine day, Tim thought it would be fun for our gang of four to explore the basement. This secret room comprised the entire first story, with access from a small door concealed beneath the wooden staircase in the courtyard. As fortune would have it, when we decided to embark on our little expedition, someone had left the door unlocked that day. We needed no further encouragement. Quick as a flash, Tim, Perry, Lily, and I slipped into this mysterious realm. Tim flicked the switch beside the door, and we gaped at the contents within. Dimly lit by a single, dangling light bulb was the treasure chamber to the household storage area. Everywhere we looked was a magical-seeming item. Funny-looking clothes from a different era, colorful mismatched crockery, old furniture pieces, odd-shaped little boxes, and other fascinating trinkets we could not name. We touched or lifted each item to marvel at the unfamiliar shapes, textures, and colors. There was a sound, bang. The door slammed shut on us and we could hear a girl giggling. 
We thought at once it was cousin Ava, first Aunt Elsie's second daughter. Ava was only a few years older than Tim, but she thought we were all babies, and hence beneath her notice. Tim hollered, Ava, we know it's you, Ava. Harry yelled, let us out. Lily threatened, we'll tell grandma. They banged on the door, but to no avail. It was shut tight. Ava had locked us in. Panicked, I began to feel the walls closing in. I thought the light from the bulb was slowly fading, even as the shadows lengthened and seemed to gather around us expectantly. I promptly burst into tears. Lily tried to calm me, even as the boys continued to shout and thump on the door. It felt like hours but was probably only a few minutes later when the door opened. Aunt Elsie's oldest daughter, Tia stood looking at us in the doorway, quite puzzled. What are you all doing inside? All of us were reprimanded of course. The basement was forever barred to our gang, while Ava was scolded for locking us inside. The curious thing was that Ava was adamant the door slipped out of her hands and slammed by itself. She had only meant to shut the door to give us a little scare. Even when we were all grown, she still maintained that story. We didn't like Ava as much as we liked Ned, Tia, or Sonia. The four of us thought she was lying through her teeth. But once in a while, I also remember how weird the shadows looked and the way they had frightened me. One of grandma's rules for her grandchildren was that when the sun was shining and up high in the sky, we were allowed to run amok in the sprawling jungle that passed as a garden. But once the sun began to set, regardless of where we were on the property, we all had to return to the shelter of the house. The reason for this probably goes back to the time when Tim and Perry were a bit tardy in heeding the call to head back indoors. They had been thoroughly engrossed in shooting marbles on the flagstones in the courtyard between main house and servants' quarters. The sun had started its slide over the horizon when something caught Tim's eye. See that? He pointed up at the sky. Perry craned his neck. See what? That bird thing, you idiot, said Tim with an older brother's withering scorn. I'm not an idiot, you're the moron, was the defiant reply. Then they both saw the flying thing, a black silhouette against the gathering dusk. Like an ominous shadow, it hovered seemingly motionless in the sky for several moments. The napes of their necks prickled in warning, the boys had the distinct impression that it was gazing down at them with baleful intelligence. My cousins instinctively backed away to the staircase, towards the protection of the house. They clambered up the wooden steps, too terrified to even call out for help. The creature did not come any closer to the house. Instead, it circled three times over the roof of the neighbor's house, before flying away into the twilight. Tim and Perry hurtled back into the house. Their account sparked a debate in the family as to what they had actually seen. There was some confusion as to the actual shape of the winged creature, since the brothers gave conflicting descriptions. 
Tim said it had the wings of a bat. Harry thought it looked like a peregrine falcon. This made one of my uncles suggest it could have been a rare sighting of a bat hawk. Dad had the opinion that it was probably a fruit bat, also known as a flying fox. The boys were certain that it was not someone flying a kite either. They had played with enough kites themselves to know the difference. Furthermore, if they had seen the creature so clearly from that distance, it must have had the wingspan of an eagle. It was something a lot bigger in size than the various winged creatures that had been suggested. One thing the brothers both agreed on, whatever it was, it didn't feel friendly. Cousin Nick, second Aunt Maggie's only son, had a number of experiences at the Cairnhill house as well. When Nick was about three, he had been playing near the kitchen when he suddenly pointed to a well-lit corner in the courtyard. Ma, look, funny man. What man? Startled, his mother looked up from the pot on the stove she was minding in the kitchen but saw just the usual shadows cast by the afternoon sun. Nick gave her the exasperated look that only a three-year-old could manage. Aunt Maggie managed to piece together that he had seen the slight figure of a man in some sort of uniform. The funny man had wept red tears which trailed down his cheeks. A small monkey sat on his shoulder. The whole area had been filled with people at the time. They were preparing for dinner and there was someone walking across the courtyard every few minutes on an errand to or from the main house. But not one person had seen what Nick was talking about. Most people would put down that episode down to a child's vivid imagination. Except that the whole composition was quite bizarre. How could a three-year-old to put together an image like that out of the blue? Then something else happened when my cousin was just a year older. It was bedtime and Nick was brushing his teeth at the sink when Aunt Maggie heard him scream. She came running up to find him trembling and pale. The head, the head, was all Nick could stammer out. After some patient questioning, Aunt Maggie learned that he had seen a face looking at him through the open window on the second story. It had belonged to a disembodied head, just a head, hanging in the air. She asked him if it was a man, woman, or child. What color were the eyes, skin, or hair? Poor Nick had been too shocked to notice much detail from the fleeting glimpse. Aunt Maggie also thought it was unlikely any intruder could have climbed a tree to peer in at him. It was night and pitch dark outside. Also, there were no trees next to the house. Weird and inexplicable things happened all the time at Grandma's house. Right up to the end. It was the end of an era when the house was sold during the 1970s. As we were only children, our wishes didn't enter into the equation. The house was simply too big to maintain and my grandmother was getting older. Above all, grandma was pragmatic, having kept her family intact before and after the ravages of war. She had bought a modern condominium in the Bukitima area and that was to be her new home. Third uncle Adrian was the very last to leave. 
Grandma and my aunts had all cautioned him not to dilly-dally. They were worried that the resident spirits would not welcome, having him around when the family no longer owned the house. My uncle only half believed in the family legends, he was among the few staying at the house to be, untested, by the spirits. Preoccupied with university studies, Uncle Adrian was still sorting out his textbooks and study notes the day after the settlement had gone through. That afternoon, as my uncle was packing his books into boxes scattered about the gravel driveway, he had the unnerving sensation of being surrounded by a host of angry eyes. Being made of sterner stuff than the average man, Uncle Adrian continued with his packing. The taxi driver he had hired was on standby, waiting to help stash the boxes away in the boot. But after a while, the driver began to look uneasy and kept asking my uncle if he was going to be much longer. Uncle Adrian gritted his teeth and carried on until the feeling became overwhelming. Finally, he couldn't bear it anymore. Hastily picking up the nearest box, my uncle abandoned the rest of his books and boxes on the driveway and jumped into the waiting taxi. Without a backward glance, he urged the driver to leave the house at Cairn Hill. Later, all we left the house. The property at Cairn Hill was bought by developers who demolished the buildings and bulldozed over the garden. But soon after excavation work began, everything came to a screeching halt. There were claims that bones were discovered. The work was delayed for months. We heard mutterings and rumors of mysterious problems on site, like tools going missing. And money woes plaguing the developers. But at length, construction was completed. The site where Grandma's house, courtyard, and kitchen once stood had become part of the Cairn Hill Hotel. That beautiful garden was now buried under the hotel's car park area. About 20 years ago, I was talking about Grandma's house at Cairn Hill with Lily, my older sister, when my younger sister, Kara chimed in. Although she had been too young to remember the house, she still heard about the family legends. Kara had just graduated from the Hotel Catering College in Singapore and still kept in touch with her former classmates. They had told her that the chambermaids at Cairn Hill Hotel would only work in two-person teams on certain floors. Some of the hotel staff there believed that the place was haunted. Dive into the chilling abyss of real-life hauntings on Charlie's Chills podcast exclusively on YouTube. Join us for eerie tales from the internet and our listeners. Search in YouTube for, at C-H-A-R-L-I-E-S-C-H-I-L-L-S, I repeat, at C-H-A-R-L-I-E-S-C-H-I-L-L-S, subscribe and embrace the darkness that awaits.